Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and I get the joy of preaching a lot. Uh, this morning marks the beginning of what is the longest sermon series we've ever preached uh, in the short history of our church. Uh, as I've said, it's the book of Matthew. Now, the book of Matthew um, is likely the uh, second written record of Jesus' life uh, after the book of Mark. And you may not know much about Matthew, but you're going to know a lot today because this is kind of how we start most of our series. Uh, we introduce uh, what you need to know, and then it's obviously recorded so anyone who starts the series later can kind of get some background and setting. So I'm going to give you a ton of information today, and you're going to have to take feverish notes, but all the notes are actually online, so you could also just listen, and that would be nice too. Um, but after Mark, um, as I said, it was um, written... And it contains, you may or may not know, 28 chapters in a total of 1,068 verses, every single one of which we will read. Which is just awesome. Our series is going to have five different study guides, include at least 85 sermons, if I don't add any more, and take us about a year and a half. It's going to be a long series, so... I'm excited for it. We go through um, books of the Bible, Old New Testament, and we've never really done something this big, but it's going to be awesome. And what I've found is that a lot of pastors avoid the book of Matthew primarily because it's size. Um, and sometimes they preach, it, they preach through it a little more quickly with larger chunks. And we're not really going to do that. We're going to savor every word because we're not in a race. And if Jesus comes... Before we're done, that's cool. And so we don't have to worry about it. We're going to uh, hit every word as well as we can. Now, the Bible does teach that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. And it was done so through men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. Now, the book of Matthew, however, is unique in this way. It is the most comprehensive record of Jesus' direct teaching that we have. So it's not only an account of everything Jesus did, it's actually the most complete record of everything Jesus said. And so that's one reason we picked Matthew. So we're going to begin, uh, if you turn actually to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. If you don't know where Matthew is, it's in the beginning of the New Testament, right after Malachi that we had studied at the end of the Old Testament. And as I said, this book that has been historically called the Book of Sayings, S-A-Y-I-N-G-S, the Book of Sayings, uh, we're going to begin with the last thing that Matthew records Jesus ever said to His disciples. You may be familiar with it. It's Matthew 28, verses 18-20. to And God's Word says this, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's Word. This is also called the Great Commission. This is also the stated written mission of our church. We're not real creative. We're just doing what Jesus told us to. So I'm going to pray. Ask that God will 
honestly teach us today about Matthew so that we can prepare to hear uh, what Jesus has to teach us through Matthew. So let me just pray so I don't screw this up. Father God, we come before You humbly knowing that You are King, You are Lord, You are Creator, You are Ruler of all. And You have been gracious enough to give us Your Word. And it is a Word that is powerful. It is the only thing which has the power to change hearts. To transform us from the inside out. So I pray as we delve into Your Word, the book of Matthew that You gave us several thousand years ago, that it will be new to us today. That You will renew us through it today. That we will learn something powerful. Help us to be comforted if we need comfort, Father. Help us to be convicted if we need conviction. But all in all, help us to love You more as a result of the study. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, these final verses, I think, uh, I'm going to begin with them, and then 85 sermons from now, I'm going to end with them, um, are, I think, the heart of everything Matthew wanted to teach us from writing this book. And they represent Jesus' final declaration of who He is and what He has done. They represent His final instructions, really, for, for who we are and what we're supposed to do. And his final directions about how we're supposed to do it and how long we're supposed to do it for. There's a lot in just these few verses, and it's only going to take me 85 sermons to explain all of it. Now, this first sermon is not just an introduction to the story, it's actually a little, or also an introduction to the storyteller, Matthew. You may know nothing about Matthew, you're going to know a little more today. I want to share with you three things. One is the purpose of a gospel at all. Not the gospel, a gospel. Then I want to talk about the person in the gospel of Matthew that he gives us, namely this Jesus guy. And then I want to talk about Matthew himself and the power of the gospel that has transformed his life. The book of Matthew is known as a gospel. We use the gospel word a lot. We talk about preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, The Gospel being the historical redemptive work that God has done through Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection that He has died for the sins in our place, for our sins, given us new life, that our salvation is based on what He did and nothing we can do. That Gospel, that's a little bit different than a Gospel being a a kind of literature. Now, some of you may know I used to be an English teacher. Okay, Love literature. Not real good at grammar. Okay, But I love literature. Love story. And so, this is a kind of literature. And, and unlike epistles, okay, maybe you've heard of epistles that are written to churches or letters written to churches like Paul wrote, letters to young men like Timothy or Titus that Paul wrote, or even grand apocalyptic visions like John received from Jesus. That's not what we're studying or what we're looking at with Matthew. Matthew... And, and really the other Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels deal primarily with the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they're more than biography. And they're, they're more than just a character sketch. And they're more than just this narration of all these miraculous things that happened to this Galilean peasant a couple thousand years ago. The Gospel give us two things. They give us proclamations and they give us instructions on how to respond to that proclamation. 
Now the term gospel literally means evangel- evangelon, okay? It means good news. You probably have heard that before. And historically what that was was heralds, you know, guys would would walk through town and they'll proclaim news of events that had occurred that had changed the condition of those who heard it. So it's like, by the way, Assyria is now in charge, right? It's proclaiming something of who the new king is, something that had occurred, so they would herald it, they would proclaim it. They weren't coming through giving advice of what to do. They were just proclaiming something that had happened. And so the Gospel stories, the Gospels are by nature evangelistic. They are proclamations of something that Jesus has done. Now, the Gospels in particular, Matthew, but all of them, they possess lots of teaching, like ethical things, to t- ethics and morals and, and different uh, ways to live that, that is in there. These are teachings of, of Jesus, but these aren't the Gospel. They're part of a Gospel literature, but they're not the Gospel. These are, those are the ethical teachings, the moral responses, the behaviors, the ways we ought to live. Those are responses or results of the Gospel. Christianity is not a, a way of life. It is a proclamation of one man's life. The Gospel is primarily a declaration of something that God has done to change everything. So we don't lead with, love your neighbor. We lead with, let me tell you how God has loved us, which results in you loving your neighbor. Now, as revealed by the Great Commission that we just read, the first thing that Matthew says is a declaration about who Jesus is and what He has achieved. Namely, His authority. And the second part of the Great Commission, and there really is a third part that we often ignore, but the second half of the Great Commission calls us to respond to that declaration. I have been given authority. Now, go. Jesus has lordship. Jesus has rule. Jesus is the King. Therefore, we obey. Okay? So, This is where Matthew is is going. Now, I want you to understand a little bit about Matthew because I don't know what your perceptions are about how this was written. But sometimes we have the perception that Matthew or Mark, whatever, is sitting there as Jesus is talking, transcribing on some kind of skins or something like, oh, can you say that again, Jesus, and writing down. That's not what happened. Okay, This was written, what we're reading here, was written 20 to 30 years after Jesus had ascended to heaven. There's disagreement. That's why I have the 20 to 30 in there. Now, even though, and I'm just going to assume you know nothing, okay? If you're like, I know that. Fantastic. I'm so glad you listened at Sunday school or went to Bible school, okay? But all of us need to remind, be reminded of these things. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament listed there, but it's not the first book written. Okay? Now, it makes sense because it's there. The story, you end with Malachi and then you enter Jesus and John the Baptist and those kind of things. But Matthew was actually written after Paul the Apostle had completed all his missionary journeys and it was written after he'd written all of his 13 letters. So chronologically, you have to kind of put Matthew and really the other Gospels at after all those things are occurring. But as the church grew, Matthew's Gospel was likely composed 
like I said, 20 to 30 years after Jesus. So you're talking, if Jesus died in A.D. 33, you're talking 53 to, to 70, somewhere in there. Okay? As the Christians began to experience what was their first kind of persecution. Christians were being martyred in, in horrible ways. And so, at the time Matthew was writing, you are seeing churches planted, you are seeing the church grow, but you're also seeing all of the eyewitnesses who lived with and followed Jesus, including the twelve disciples, being murdered. So that's what's going on. And so you go, well, why write the story down? Well, it makes sense to start writing it when the eyewitnesses are all disappearing. And so this is what's occurring. So moved by the Holy Spirit, men like Matthew began to write down the one story of Jesus in order to do several things. One, preserve the one story. Let's make sure we get the one story right because we're all passing it on and it's great to have you know Matthew preaching at your church, but one day it's not going to be Matthew and he knew that. They also wanted to make sure that they taught the story to the next generation in the church. What did Jesus say? So protect it and continue to teach it, but then the third thing obviously is spread it to outside the church. They wanted a message to proclaim that was consistent, that was accurate, and so they wrote it down. But if there is only one Jesus, and I know you're thinking this, or you should be, and only one story, why did God give us four Gospels? Great question. You know, I was thinking you were thinking that. So that's why I wrote something down to respond to it. It's like we're connected. It's rad. Alright. Well, each of the Gospel accounts, and you may know this, you may not, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the story of Jesus. And though essentially the stories are the same, God used the personalities of these guys who were very different, the experiences of each of these guys who were very different, to reach different audiences for different reasons in different ways. It's similar to having different news stations reporting the same stories with their perspectives. The facts are all the same or similar, but maybe told from a different angle or a different experience. So each writer is unique. So let me give you a real quick snapshot of others before we hit Matthew. Mark, probably based on the report of Peter, Mark was a young Jewish Christian who writes like a preacher. Okay? He wrote Romans, or he wrote two Romans, and he wrote the shortest gospel there is in numbers of verses and chapters. Right? Luke has fewer chapters than Matthew, but much more words. So Mark wrote to Romans who, what did they value? Power, action, conquest. Okay? And it follows that, as I said, that he wrote the shortest Gospel, but he also uses the fewest Old Testament quotes. Why? Romans. He explains any Jewish customs that he puts in there. He uses 150 active verbs. If you just read the first two chapters, you see the word immediately, 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 immediately. It comes over and over again. Why? Rome. Let's take that. Let's take that, right? They like power, action, conquest, movement. 
It records the most miracles, because you want power, 35 of them in Mark, the shortest Gospel. In Mark, there's no record of Jesus' birth or His early life. In fact, the story begins at His baptism when He's 33. Why? Because Romans could care less about the lineage of a servant or a carpenter. So there's no genealogy. He's portrayed as a servant, an obedient servant, but also a servant king. Why? Rome likes kings. Rome likes rulers, but not this kind of ruler, which was what Mark was going to show him. And it was a convincing thing because the Gospel ends with the conversion of a Roman soldier when Jesus dies and He looks up at the cross with a sign saying, King of the Jews, and says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Only recorded in Mark. So that's Mark. We also have Luke. You may know a lot about Luke. may not. He was a Gentile doctor. Medical doctor. He wrote like an educated doctor, and he wrote to fairly uneducated Gentiles. It's been said that a minister or pastor sees men at their best. A lawyer sees men at their worst. And a doctor sees men as they are. It's been said. So Luke just tells you the facts. Funded most likely by a wealthy benefactor named Theophilus. Both the book of Acts and the book of Luke are titled that. Guys probably had deep pockets and said, you know what, I'm going to pay you to do a very detailed investigation about this guy named Jesus. And so Luke does. He writes as a reporter, investigating to get every fact. And so 90% of Mark is actually found in Luke. Great witness. As a result, Luke writes the longest Gospel, and in the Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the Son of Man. Fully human. A man who was full of the Spirit, who was also God. But His humanity is the focus. And in Luke, what we see in the very beginning, there's a genealogy, and the genealogy is traced all the way back to Adam. You'll see next week, Matthew has its own genealogy, and it doesn't go back to Adam. People go, why are they different? Because they're writing for different purposes. In this case, Luke is writing to show that Jesus is the last and better Adam. He is everything that Adam and we was intended to be in its full and glorious humanity that God designed. So that's Luke. And then you got John. And John is really different. It is one of the most deeply theological books. He, uh, John is a Jewish Christian and he's writing to educated Greeks. Thinkers. He does not write and doesn't even attempt to offer a perfect chronology of events. In fact, it's different than the other Gospels in terms of some of the orders. Because he is writing as a theologian. So Mark writes as a preacher, let me tell you about Jesus! Like, boom, 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 he did all these things! Mark's like, let me tell you about Jesus, right? And he's very, you know, I don't want to say nerdy, but he is a doctor, he's educated, he's studious, very factual. And then you got John, who is the theologian thinker. He is writing for a particular purpose, and he declares that purpose several times. 
He aims to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Unlike Luke, who was proving or investigating the Son of Man. So John says, I am arguing that He is actually God, our Creator. Jesus is the Lord. And so, he doesn't have a genealogy of sorts, but he kind of does. John's book starts off by basically saying Jesus lived forever. He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's your genealogy. Jesus always was. And then he continues to say Jesus created all things. So John has a very particular purpose as he tells this story of Jesus. 90% of John is unique to John. You won't find it in the other Gospels. And unlike the other Gospels, in John there are no parables. There are no exorcisms. But there are a bunch of declarations of Jesus' divinity. Of Him declaring who He was. We have the I Am statements and some others. So that's the, the three Gospels. And of course... The purpose of all of them is to give us some portrayal of Jesus, all accurate, but a little bit different. But that brings us to the person of the Gospel of Matthew. Who is this Jesus in Matthew that we see? What is unique about Matthew's Gospel? Well, Matthew was written for two purposes in two different audiences. First, Matthew was written, or Matthew wrote, to defend the authority, as we see in the Great Commission, of Jesus. It's a little bit of an apologetic. And he wanted to prove that Jesus was the promised King. The Messiah that they had been waiting for since the Garden of Eden and through Moses and through David. All this prophecy about a Savior that would come. This is what Matthew is trying to prove. Matthew wrote as a Jew to reach Jews by arguing that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. The phrase, this was to fulfill, that phrase like, Jesus did this, this was to fulfill blank, appears 16 times in the Gospel of Matthew and rarely if at all in the others. His conscious commitment to fulfilling prophecy, that being Jesus and Matthew explaining this, is really the key aspect of Matthew's portrait and why we have the series titled The Coming King. We'll constantly talk about the king over the next year and a half. Matthew 26.55 when Jesus was being arrested is kind of one of the key verses, really 56, but I'll read 55 for context. It says, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, this is the crowds that have come to arrest Him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures might be, uh, scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So this is the intention. This is God, this is Matthew's effort to establish the authority of Jesus and thereby fulfill and explain the beginning or the first half of the Great Commission. Authority's been given to Jesus. He's well, who is he? He is the guy that the world has been waiting for. That Adam and Eve were promised in Genesis chapter 3, that Abraham was promised, that David was promised. 
So Matthew's intent is to say, this is the guy. This is who the world has been waiting for, not just the Jews. Because the promise to Abraham was not just to the Jews. It was like, your family is going to rock and they're going to bless the world. That's the first purpose of Matthew writing. The second, and my favorite, is that Matthew wrote to teach. He wanted to record, for whatever reason, more than any other gospel writer, not gospel writer, not only what Jesus did, but also what he said. So Matthew wrote as a Christian to Christians. Matthew is largely responsible for producing what became really the first collection or the handbook of the teachings of Jesus that the church had. This is probably why I love Matthew, because not only is Matthew this, but it portrays Jesus as a teacher. And I'm a teacher. Love teaching. More than any other gospel, 60% of this book is Jesus' direct words. Well, if you've got a red letter edition, it'll be like red everywhere. Because it's Jesus' direct words. It's the only book that's organized in really five big chunks of teaching marked with the phrase, when he finished saying these things. So you can read these chunks and go, when he finished saying these things. Because Jesus says a lot. He preaches a lot. He teaches a lot. It's the only book Matthew, that is, that possesses the complete teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters long. It is the only book that gives us teaching about church discipline, and really the church much at all. At least explicitly. Matthew is also organized kind of liturgically, which scholars believe that's why they used it so much early in the church, because it was easy to memorize the way it's organized. And I love organization. He's a teacher. The book of Matthew would have served as the first kind of theological textbook that the church had. And it was to instruct the people of God concerning the person and work of Jesus. So this is, the book of Matthew is Matthew's effort to fulfill the second half of the Great Commission. Now, I know we know the first two-thirds of the Great Commission, right? Right? All authority has been given to me. And you're like, okay, that's rad. Now go and make disciples. Awesome. What about the third part? And to teach them all that I have commanded. This is what Matthew's trying to do. This is what Matthew wrote the book of Matthew for. To fulfill Jesus' command. And to help us do the same. So, we see the purpose of the Gospel, right? The purpose of it. Now, we also see what Gospels are for and all those kind of things, but let's talk about Matthew himself. Because Matthew himself is, is a pretty intriguing guy. The purpose of the Gospel, Matthew, is clear. It's proclamation instruction. The unique portrait of Jesus is of this teacher, of, of this king. We see that. But what about Matthew himself? Well, his call is actually, and I say call by Jesus saying, come follow me, is recorded in Matthew chapter 9. We're not going to read that one. We will. But I turn your Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 5. And we'll read what Dr. Luke said, because he was a better investigator than Matthew. In Luke chapter 5, we have Matthew's call in verse 27. 
need to remember that Jesus was uh, Jesus lived in three cities, in case you weren't aware of that. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. And then at some point he moved to Capernaum. So when Jesus speaks in the Gospel about no honor in his hometown, his hometown he's talking about is Capernaum. And on one of these occasions while he was around Capernaum, he had just healed a paralyzed guy. You may remember the story where his friends lower him through the roof. And he heals him by forgiving his sins, which is a declaration of his divinity right there, because only God can forgive sins. But then after doing that, he walks over to Matthew's office, which happens to be a tax booth in the center of town. It says, verse 27, after this, the healing, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's be clear about one thing as we look at Matthew. He was not chosen because he was some rock star. He was a rock star sinner. Okay, He was this broken, sick guy that Jesus is talking about reaching. He is the one that needs a physician. He was a sick sinner. The best of us are. Right? Matthew's one of the twelve. You're like, he's one of the twelve. Yeah, he's one of the twelve sinners that Jesus chose. God be praised. So don't for a second think that your sin in some way makes you less than. That's the only kind of people God uses. Okay? But let's talk about Matthew a little bit. He's a pretty um, obscure disciple. Let's talk about Levi the tax collector. Outside of Peter and John and James, maybe, we don't hear much about Matthew. In fact, the only things you hear about Matthew is actually when he's in lists of the twelve disciples. That's it. The only reason you ever speak about Matthew more than you do Bartholomew, he's a disciple, yeah, but he didn't know that, or Thaddeus, or Philip, can you name any others? I don't know if you can, but the only reason you know more about him than you do these other guys is because there's a book. The book of Matthew. Oh, Matthew. He was a rough boy. He was a, the only reason. And guess what? His book is anonymous. The only reason we attribute it to Matthew is because an early church father said that he wrote it. Matthew never ascribed it to himself. So from what we know from Luke and from Matthew chapter 9 as well where he records his own calling, what we know about Matthew before he followed Jesus is that he was a tax collector. And I assume a lot of you have ideas of what a tax collector is. Like every government, Rome collected taxes. Okay? Now, they had really three different kinds of taxes. They had property taxes, which for those of you who own homes, you are familiar with. 
that had taxes and they had import taxes. And Matthew was largely an import tax collector. And they had a unique system of collecting taxes. Basically, they had what would be called a farm system for all these import or customs taxes. And so various tax collectors, usually men of great wealth, would actually bid on different geographic regions that they got to collect from. So they're all divided into districts. And Matthew bid on the district around Galilee. And so what they would do, being a man of great wealth, they would actually pay the taxes in advance to Rome. And then they would collect whatever they wanted to obviously make up for what they paid. And a little more. So Rome was already paid off, but Rome would give them the authority and the support with the soldiers to collect taxes should they need it. And so tax collectors basically worked on commission, right? So if they could get more, they could get more. And so they became pretty corrupt extortionists if they could get a really low bid for their region and then lots of you know, trade came in, then they could make quite a bit of extra money. And Winning a district, as I said, meant that you had the authority of Rome behind you in case someone didn't want to pay. So, tax collection could benefit you greatly if you were of the persuasive type, like the mob type of persuasion. And so, the Jews looked at, now Matthew's Jewish, the Jews viewed tax collectors Not very positively. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you see that they are the example they use for sinners. Like, you're almost as bad as a tax collector. Like, there isn't anything lower for that. And even Rome, though they would do their job, they viewed these tax collectors as like brothel owners. That was their perspective. So as a tax collector, Matthew would have been despised by everybody. He was the 1% that actually did rob others of life to make a life for himself. This is who Matthew was. And your mind should be thinking, why in the snarfest world would Jesus ever pick this guy? Have you ever seen the guys Jesus picks? Just read the Old Testament and wait till we get to his genealogy next week. You'll be like, oh my goodness, right? It is the rock of shame, a hall of shame that you've ever seen. But these are who God uses. And let's be honest, it's the only people He has to choose from. So, Matthew possessed the ambition to abuse, the authority to extort, and the power to imprison people. He was a hated man. He was hated. And I was doing a little bit of reading, and, and Jewish Matthew also went by Levi. And this has led some to believe that he actually may have been a member of the Levitical tribe. Not all scholars think that, but some do. But if, if he was, then that meant he was supposed to be a pastor. Right? Supposed to be a priest. So having abandoned this service, what he was supposed to do, He chose instead to pursue, obviously, a more lucrative career, serving a king who was not Jesus. So he worked for King Herod Antipas, not Herod when Jesus was born Herod. 
sitting at a booth daily in Jesus' hometown of Capernaum in Galilee, collecting money. In order to serve as a tax collector, he would have had to been well-educated. He would have had to been extremely wealthy. He would have had to been highly organized and very greedy. Which, at least the highly organized, this helps you understand why he is actually qualified to write what he wrote. What is, I think, a pretty amazing piece of literature, but also, I think, shows you the incredible power of Jesus Christ to transform anybody. Much like Paul, the apostle who went from murderer of Christians to martyr, beheaded outside Rome, you have Matthew go from money collector to martyr, who was most likely either by spear or sword run through as he was evangelizing Ethiopia. Pretty amazing transformation. Through the Gospel, we have this beginning picture of his transformation. As Jesus called him to follow, what does it say? He got up and he left everything. What's everything? Well, he left behind great wealth. He left behind great position. He left behind great power. He left behind great security. Matthew left everything because that one meeting with Jesus changed everything. And following a homeless, penniless Galilean peasant around the region for three years wasn't the best way to climb the corporate ladder. But serving the one and only King, the promised Savior, the Son of God, was definitely the right one. And the first thing he does is he throws a huge party for Jesus. An expensive, a feast. I don't know if you've ever had a feast. Like, we have some nice dinners. But a feast. And he invites every sinner he knows to attend. Right? Which is beautiful. Matthew is living out the great commission that he is going to call us to. He knows that if Jesus can save a corrupt, greedy, unwanted tax collector who is despised more than thieves and prostitutes, he can save anyone. He is a disciple already from the first moment trying to make disciples. Is that your desire? Is that your commitment? Because it's Jesus' command. And while everyone is confused as to why Jesus would ever pick a sinner like a tax collector to be a disciple, we see that he picked the one guy who had lots of sinful friends to gather with him. All of Matthew's experience, really listen to this, all of Matthew's experiences, all of his education, all of his rebellion, all of his extortion, all of his years devoted to building his own kingdom were designed by God for one day to be used to advance his kingdom. So much so that we are reading what this tax collector wrote 2,000 plus years later and praising God for what he did. Matthew 
also never wants his readers to forget who he was. This is really interesting. He never wants people to forget that he was a tax collector. And I say that because I don't want you to ever be ashamed of your broken past. We all have mistakes we've made, people we've hurt, people that have hurt us. But God is not praised if that stuff is left in darkness. God is only praised when we see what we were and we proclaim what God has made us to be. Now, Matthew doesn't let us forget this. In Matthew chapter 10, and this doesn't happen in Luke or John or Mark, when the disciples are listed out in Matthew's Gospel, what does he add? Levi, the tax collector. He adds the tax collector. He wants people to remember. And people reading that would have put, oh, Levi, the prostitute. Levi, the drug addict. Levi, the false prophet. I mean, think of whatever it is. Levi, the promiscuous. Levi, the adulterer. He didn't want people to forget who he was because that's not who he was anymore. It was to proclaim the power of God to transform. He wants us to remember how Jesus took an unknown, unwanted tax collector and transformed him into one of our greatest teachers. But what does he teach us? So let me conclude it. What are we going to see in Matthew? Three things. The Gospel of Matthew teaches us this, that Jesus is the promised King. Well, what does that mean for us? It simply means this, that He is the promised Son to Adam and Eve who was told that you would one day have a son who would crush the head of Satan. He is the promised seed to Abraham who said He would heal the whole world. He is the promised prophet to Moses. Did you know He was promised another prophet who would come? who would lead us out of slavery to sin. Jesus is the promised priest in Zechariah who says that in one day He will heal all sin. Jesus is the promised King to David who says He will rule on the throne forever. That's what it means. We also see the Gospel of Matthew teaches us that Jesus is a missionary King, right? We're going through the Great Commission. He is authoritative. He is ruling, but it doesn't look like it. He is. There is nothing outside of His control. There is nothing that surprises Him. There is nothing He cannot stop. Nothing He cannot start. Nothing He cannot heal. Nothing He cannot crush. He is King. But He's more than King, right? He's not just the promised King. He is the missionary King. That's the second part. The King not only dwells with us, not only provides for us, not only protects us and fights for us, the King sends us. He has commanded us. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't like, hey, if you have some time, maybe you think about. The King has commanded us to go into the world and proclaim. We're not running into the world telling people what they ought to do or not ought not to do. We are 
called and commanded to proclaim what God has done. We're not charged to proclaim that a man should love thy neighbor, forgive your enemy, or give to the poor. We are called to say, look how God has loved us. Look how God has forgiven us. Look how God has taken me, who was an enemy, put his fingers in my gun, and made me his child. That's what we're called to proclaim. We're called to proclaim that we have been sent. And we're called to do that until we die. And even through our death, like Matthew ended up doing. And the last thing is that the Gospel of Matthew teaches us not only that we have a promised king and a missionary king, but a teaching king. Through his words, but more so through, I think, what we see in his life, Matthew teaches us that we are citizens of a different and greater kingdom. And we hear it elsewhere in the Bible, we're much more than citizens, we're ambassadors. And we've been given a ministry. And though our ministry begins with proclaiming to all people of all nations, of all stations of life, of all cultures and all contexts, who Jesus is and what He has done, it doesn't stop there. Because the Great Commission doesn't stop there. That's why Matthew doesn't stop there. If we are truly His disciples, committed to making disciples, we will also teach others to observe all that Jesus commanded, including the Great Commission. It's not enough for us just to gather here. It's glorious and beautiful, and we experience a unique presence of God and an opportunity to worship that God intended for us to have. This is to be a place of healing, a place of encouragement, a place of learning, a place of love, but that is not where it stops. We are to go and we are to continue to proclaim and we are to teach. We are to teach others to observe all that Jesus commanded. In other words, here's why we're studying Matthew. Ready for the big takeaway? We're not studying Matthew because it's easiest. It's actually quite difficult. There's some things in here that are going to be like, oh my goodness. It's going to take us a while to process it and dig through it. It's not because it's the shortest. Mark's a lot shorter. We are preaching through Matthew because we want to be obedient to what Jesus said. To observe all that I've commanded. And guess what? This contains the most of what Jesus commanded. Yes, he commands and speaks through his other apostles, but this is the book of Matthew, 60% of Jesus' direct teaching, and he ends with, go and make disciples of all nations and teach them. Yes. Let's start here, so that we can be an obedient people to the Great Commission. Matthew is a teacher teaching us that Jesus is a teacher teaching us that we're supposed to be teachers. And maybe you're teaching your spouse, maybe you're teaching your children, maybe you're teaching your fellow brother or sister in Christ, maybe you're going to be teaching strangers. But it's not enough to just sit in the authority of God and let Him rule on you if you're not going, and it's not enough to go if you're not teaching. So my hope is that as we sit in Matthew, we will accomplish or begin to get closer to accomplishing the Great Commission and understanding what that means for all of us. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to take communion as a family.
And I'll explain it after we do. But let's just sit in those three truths that Jesus is our promised King, but He is also a missionary King and He's a teaching. 